0: 2nd Samuel chapter 22 uh, verse 1 And David spoke to the Lord the words of the song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul He said The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God my rock in whom I take refuge my shield the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge my savior you save me from violence I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved by my enemies for the waves of death accompanying me The torrents of destruction Assailed me The cords of Sheol Entangled me The snares of death Confront me In my distress I called upon the Lord To my God I called From his temple He heard my voice And, the, and my cry Came to his ears And then in chapter 24 Verses 18 through 25 And Gad came that day To David And said to him Go up Raise an altar To the Lord On the threshing floor Of Anurah To Jezebite uh, the so David went up to Gad's words as the Lord commanded and when Aruna looked down he saw the king and his servants coming to- on towards him and Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground and Anurah said why has my lord the king come to the ser- to his servant David said to buy the threshing floor for you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people then Anura said to David let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood all this o king Ar- aruna Give to the king and Aruna said to the king may the Lord your God accept you But the king said to Anurah No, but I will buy it from you for a price I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings So the Lord responded to the plea from the land and the plague was averted from Israel You can be seated.
1: Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to come before your word today. It's a blessing to be reminded, um, as our nation does this week, reminds us to be thankful for the blessings we have. What uh, incredible ways you have blessed us far, far above anything we deserve. God, it was good this week to reflect uh, as a church on Wednesday just some of the ways you have um, blessed us, so many ways we have to be thankful God, may we um, use this week uh, to be mindful of what you have done for us. God, thank you for uh, the word we've just heard and more that's here before us today uh, in 2 Samuel. God, we pray for your spirit to be at work in our hearts and our minds, even now as we hear your word proclaimed. um, May you guide us uh, to be people who are faithful, people who are uh, seeking to honor you in all things. And may you bless the time that we share together even as we approach uh, your table at the end of our service today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning. And uh, I know there are a couple new faces to our church in addition to just Will and Tori visiting with us. So I was thinking, knowing that Will and Tori were coming, uh, about my first time to infinity, and maybe you remember, if uh, if you were not uh, here at the very beginning 12 years ago, Maybe you remember your first time. And anytime you visit somewhere, not just a church, but anytime you visit for the first time, uh, there's a lot, a lot going on in your mind, a lot going on as so you're kind of taking in everything. And one of the reasons you visit something in person uh, is you get a feel for it. You can go on the church's website right now and read our statement of beliefs. Uh, you can get information about our doctrinal associations. You can even listen to these services online. There's lots of things you could research about Infinity Church or any number of other things without actually visiting in person. But coming in person, you, get, you, know, you just get a feel for it. You know what I mean? Like all the things, the intangible things you can't really touch. You just get a feel for it when you walk in the room and when you experience it in, in, in the flesh, in, in person. And as I thought about that, I thought about how many times, especially as we go back to the Old Testament, and we can't, we can't go there in person, but immersing ourselves in the Scripture can be a little bit like visiting a church or visiting somewhere else for the first time. The goal is to get so immersed in it that you more than just the details and the, the words and exactly what it says, you get you get a feel for it. You know what I mean? That's kind of why we have spent... Don't, don't keep track of this if it overwhelms you. But I think 14 weeks in First and 2 Samuel. That is a long time camped out in one place to get a feel for what's going on. Now, just so you know, that's actually really, really fast. If that seemed like a long time to you, it could have been way longer. Okay? <laughs> Maybe it seemed really short to you, and I'm sorry, but we're trying to you know, get this in a manageable amount of time. So our goal was to just really immerse ourselves in these stories to understand what, what God was teaching, what, why God would put it in the Bible this way, why it is the way it is, kind of like visiting somewhere in person. We have immersed ourselves in this passage. And as we get to the very end, this last four chapters from 2 Samuel 21 to 24, we are in what, what lots of commentators and people call this epilogue around Second Samuel, around First and Second Samuel, which were originally one book. And this epilogue takes a little bit of a break from what we've been doing so far. When you walk through first and second Samuel, almost all of it is is just telling a story from beginning to end. But you get to this one, and if you're not careful, it's a little bit confusing because it doesn't seem to follow chronologically. What we have in this last part is five about five different little episodes that are pieced together in a certain way, so that they are kind of a, a, a final summary using different episodes from across David's life. And the goal, I think, of this is to help you just finish getting in there to understand what it's like and more than just generically what I think is going on is that we're trying to get a feel for the kingdom of God this as we've gone through from the beginning of first Samuel all the way through we have walked with the people of Israel in a major transition in their history they went from being led by a group of judges to now being an established monarchy with a king where they have a rule and a reign and David has brought peace and justice for a little while to all the land. And this is a new kingdom. And the reason that's so important for you and me is that still today we live in the kingdom of God. We, if we are, we are believers in Christ, we are God's children. We are in the kingdom. So just like we can enter into the, or one of the reasons we enter into the Old Testament stories to understand the kingdom, to get a feel for it, is that we still live in that same kingdom. There's a lot of things that have changed since then, but it's the same God, and we too, like in the people like the people read about in this chapter, we are God's people. So that's what we're doing as we enter into these stories, is we're getting a feel for the kingdom of God. And as we walk through this epilogue, these last four chapters of the book, I hope you can get a sense for that as we go. Now, I'm going to uh, risk something a little nerdy. Can you handle if I give you one little nerdy thing? Because it's hard for me when people don't just walk through, like start to finish on something. And I'm not gonna do that today, but I'm gonna explain why. In the epilogue, almost everybody uh, agrees, they're arranged like this little triangle thing I'm gonna show you on the screen. Uh, It's five segments, four chapters, but five segments. Instead of it just being one, two, three, four, five, parts one and five are meant to go together. Parts two and four are meant to go together so that they highlight the middle part, part number three. Now the nerdy word I could give you for that, it's a chiastic structure. And you can just hand that off to anybody at lunch today if you want to just make them glaze over and you seem nerdy, okay? But this is, this is how this is structured. When you read the beginning and the end, you're like, wait, these sound a lot, a lot alike. And you read the second part and the fourth part, and you're like, these sound a lot alike. And this middle part, you're like, oh, this sounds very different than everything else. And that's on purpose. What do you know? The people who wrote the Bible were incredible writers and had great literary talent. And so we're going to walk through, in my next slide, one, two, and three, that way. Does that make sense? I had to draw it to be able to explain it, but that's, that's what I'm trying to do, okay? So we're going to take the first part and the last part, which is uh, chapter 21 all the way through verse 14 and then toward the end. So in, chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. Yeah, and we'll go from there. So this, if you're reading along, you're like, wait a second, we're just randomly in the middle of David's time now. Yes, these are just stories from across David's time of being king told in a specific way for a purpose. And so in the middle of this, middle somewhere in, in David's, David's reign, there was a period of famine, of no rain, no drought, I mean a drought, no rain, for three years. And we read this, David sought the face of the Lord. So if you wanted a key for living well in the kingdom of God, whether you're in Israel or in Fountain Inn in 2022, Here's a good place to start. David sought the face of the Lord. As we have walked through David's lives, we have seen David's life, we have seen places where he did this regularly. He regularly inquired of the Lord. And then there's a big section in the middle of his life we spent some time in where he never does that. Here David is on the right path. Things are not good, but he is seeking the Lord. He is calling out to God asking for his direction. When things are not good, David gets an answer from the Lord that there has been a sin that needs to be paid for, and without going too far in the details of that, Saul uh, backed the kingdom before him. Before David was king, Saul had wiped out uh, a significant portion of a population of the people of the Gibeonites, and the reason that was a problem is that back in Joshua chapter nine, Israel had promised, "We won't touch you," they told the Gibeonites, "We won't hurt you," and yet Saul broke a promise. Saul broke the promise that he had made. And so what God tells him is that an atonement must be made. An atonement must be made. Now that may be a word you may or not be familiar with, but atonement is simply enough kind of a form of a payment, a form of, uh, of, of making retribution. Guilt requires atonement. Sin must be paid for. And so there is a looming sin over Israel as a nation, and David realizes we have to pay for this. Now, in our modern thinking about sin, we, we don't really like that. It would be easier. We think, hey, sin is, why don't we just sweep it under the rug and not worry with it? Why would we need to pay for something that goes wrong? Can't we just ignore it? Can't God just ignore it? He's God, after all. Well, I, I've probably shared this here before because it's really helpful to me. I think I got it from Tim Keller. But when, if I came to your house this afternoon and knocked over a lamp on the way in, even if it was by accident, what are our options at that point? Like, I broke it, the lamp no longer works. Well, the first option is I could pay for it. That's what I should do. I should buy you a new lamp, right? The other option, of course, is you could say, no, 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 don't worry about it, I'll, I'll go buy it. And so you take on it and you pay for it, you buy the lamp. But there is a third option, right? You could just not have a lamp. And you say, oh, nobody paid for it. Well, you're paying for it by not having as, as much light in your room, right? Once the lamp has been broken, a non-payment is not an option. Somebody is going to pay for it in one way or another. Either you absorb it in paying for it, or sitting there with no light, or I pay for it. Sin is like that. Sin must be paid for. Guilt requires atonement. And as David is leading the people of Israel in this period, they recognize a major sin has been committed and something has to be done. And a very similar story happens at the end. So that was part one, or part of it. Part 5, the very end of this, in chapter 24, that was the first part was Saul's sin. Chapter 24 tells a story about David's sin. And in that story, David, at one point during his reign, decides he's going to count every military person, everybody that's got a sword, every leader, everybody that's willing to go out and fight in his, in his, uh, of all the people of Israel and Judah. And his military leader, Joab, warns him that this is not a good idea. Now, we actually don't get the specifics on why it's a bad idea. We assume it's probably his pride. David is probably putting his trust in his own military force, his own uh, power, and so he, this is going against God's will for him to go and count a census. We don't actually get the details of why exactly it's a sin, but what we do get very clear in verse 10, we read, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now the Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. So whatever David's sin was, probably pride, as we said, but it's not spelled out exactly. Whatever David's sin was, David sees it as against the Lord, and it requires payment. Sin requires payment. Something has to be done in order to pay for sin. The Lord, in kind of a unique way, in His grace, lets David choose what the what the disciplinary action is going to be. David chooses that an angel of the Lord comes and destroys a, a huge number of people as David offers himself up. He says, I did this. I should be the one paying for this. But just like in 21 where Saul sinned and David had to make payment for it, David comes and makes payment for the sin. And so here's what I want you to see about David's actions both in 21 and 24. A great king provides the atonement. A great king provides the atonement. Chapter 21, the, the atonement was pretty gruesome. Seven of Saul's sons were put to death in payment for the sin that Saul had committed. In chapter 24, David goes to the place where the angel of the Lord was, was about to wipe out more people to the threshing floor of a man who's a Jebusite. And David buys that piece of property, he pays for all the animals that need to be sacrificed. And he sets up an altar and makes a sacrifice right there. The details of that you could dive further into. But for our purposes today, in both places, I want you to see it was costly. It was very costly. Sin had been committed and a payment had to be made. In both cases, the Lord responded. 21, 14. After that, God responded to the plea for the land. Chapter 24, verse 25. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land. You see how it's the exact same phrase? Man, this guy who wrote 1 and 2 Samuel was a great author, great writer, so good. So he's tying these together. So you can see that these are meant to go together. The Lord responded to the plea, and the plague was ended. Destruction was ended in both cases. Payment had been made, and sin was now atoned for. It was paid in full. It was no no longer held over them. They were no longer having to suffer for that sin. This has been a theme that has come up over and over throughout 1 and 2 Samuel. Go all the way back to Eli and his sons. Go back to King Saul and his lack of repentance and no real payment. Go back to King David in 2 Samuel 11, his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and the consequences that come from then. Over and over again we see sin, when it happens, it hurts somebody and a payment must be made. The truth is that, is a part of the kingdom of God. And just like back in the Old Testament, so it is today. When we sin, payment must be made. The the option of just sweeping your sin under the rug and acting like it doesn't matter isn't an option. Somebody has to pay for sin. And in Christ, for all who believe, payment has been made. Christ is our great King who has come and He has made atonement. He has made payment he has given his life to pay for yours that's the beauty of a great and wonderful king and when christ came, he did more than just offer up uh, a few animals he offered up his own self christ is our great king who came and he made atonement that's the first part of of this epilogue and the fifth part so i want you to see the next part verses the second and the fourth part in between those two accounts of sin and atonement we have two more parallel connected accounts. Chapter 21, 15 to 22, and chapter 23, verses 8 to 20, 8 to 33. And the thing that connects both of these is we have a list of other military leaders and helpers in the kingdom of Israel. David was not the only guy with a sword. Who knew, right? Most of the battles, David or Jonathan or Saul is the main one that we see going out to battle and leading the way. But these sections give us all these war stories from across the time of David's reign. I mean, this reads like like opening up an anthology of all kinds of civil war battles or something, of just all of these big things that happened across the time of David's reign. For example, in chapter 21, we read of, of other men who defeated descendants of the giants, just like David defeated Goliath. Or in chapter 23, we read of these three great uh, the first, ones, these three great men. The first one's name is like half of my page. Right here, Johesh Bashathoth, or something like that. He defeated 800 men with a spear. Then we read of two other men who stayed in battle even after all their army uh, had left. Eleazar, who fought so long at the end of his battle that his hand was stuck to the sword. Uh, Another man, Shema, who defeated uh, the Philistines while he was defending a plot of land that had a whole bunch of food for the people. It took incredible courage. He fought there all by himself. Over and over again, all these stories are told. And the theme of this, verse 10 and verse 12 of chapter 23, the Lord brought a great victory. The Lord brought a great victory. God has been working through people, not just through David, but through all these other leaders throughout all this period. And these stories, remember, that help us remember David wasn't alone. He didn't fight these battles by himself. You know how hard it is to fight a battle by yourself? And David didn't have to fight these battles by himself he had help which shows us how God works in the kingdom of God. He doesn't send us out as lone rangers. He doesn't send us all by herself ourselves. He sends us with other people. We say things like no man is an island or there's no I in team. And so here it is. David is the key leader, but there are many others around him that made his military victories possible. And what we see inspiring around David is that he he, he, his leadership helped equip other people to lead. Now, I'm no, I'm no NBA uh, analyst, and I couldn't get into the discussion of the greatest ever and all those kind of things, but my father-in-law's into it. He's into NBA. And he tells me, I remember watching Michael Jordan play, but, again, I'm no analyst. My, according to my father-in-law, so if you disagree, you can take it up with him. He says what made Michael Jordan great. Yes, he could take the shot at the last second, you know, when the game was on the line. Yes, he was clutch. Yes, he had you know, all these different things, but the thing that really made him great is that he made the people around him great, that his team was great when he was a part of it, that he lifted others up as he went along. That theme shows up over and over again in First and Second Samuel. David needed Jonathan. Eli uh, needed Samuel. Over and over again, the, the, the key to this is not just a one-man leader, but the team working together. David shows us and models for us godly leadership in a way that says we aren't at this alone. And the way I think this shows us the kingdom of God is that a great king inspires followers. A great king inspires followers. Chapters 21 and 23 tell us of all these great warriors who were beside King David during this time. And so when we turn to the pages of the New Testament and we meet King Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised That he inspires followers. He inspires people to come after him, to participate in the kingdom, participate in what he's doing. David is, I mean, as you read about Jesus in the New Testament, you hear of many and many people, flocks, thousands that come out to him at different times. Then at times you read about just the 12 who who are named and called to be disciples. And then just like David had his three, Jesus has three, Peter, James, and John. Ones that are specifically called in specific moments to do great and wonderful things. All these times, Jesus was inspiring and leading other people to do great things. And just like in David's time, as the disciples go forward and do great things, they don't do it in their own power. Just like we read, the Lord brought about a great victory. You open up the pages somewhere like Acts chapter 2. It was not Peter's wisdom or incredible eloquence that led thousands of the people to the Lord. It was the Spirit of God. Jesus, being a great king, inspired great followers, and then could do something King David couldn't, which was to put His Spirit inside of us to empower us for the mission. God had sent His Son, and He had pretty unique powers, able to do some amazing things. Our great King Jesus inspires people to follow Him, and you and I are testimonies to that today. You and I are testimonies to the God's Spirit moving in our hearts so that we can be a part of the mission. We can be a part of the kingdom. We can go and make disciples as a part of of the church, that is, the, the people who are inspired to follow our great king. And when we do, when we do things that are impossible in our own power, God gets the glory. God gets the glory. David recognized this about the Lord, and he praised God for it. He praised God that though he was the one that was king, Though he was the one sitting on the throne, he knew the ultimate power did not belong to himself. And so he praised God for what he had done. And that's what we find in the middle part of this passage. The third part, in my little triangle thing, uh, is, is the, the emphasis of this great epilogue. It all point, points to this middle section where, and if you're following along on your pages, it looks a little different. It looks like poetry. The, the, the way the, the people line it out here looks differently. It looks like the Psalms because it is a Psalm. In fact, you can find this ex- chapter 22 almost verbatim in Psalm 18. It's in there twice in your Bibles. David was an incredible Psalm writer. So many of the Psalms are, are, are written by David. And so 2 Samuel captures one of these to help us see David's heart right here in the middle of the narrative of telling his story. And this climactic part of the epilogue is here because it's pointing to David's heart and what should be our heart if we are a part of God's people. This might be David at his very best because this is David recognizing that even when he's not at his best, he's meant to glorify God. All that he has, all that he's doing is meant to point to God. David's life uh, sometimes is looked at like a model of a great king. And he was. He was, he was a, the, the king by which all other kings in Israel were measured. And yet a very flawed man. And so at his best, what he does is he points to the one who is the king above him. The king of kings. David's life, if there's one thing you're going to take away from it, it's this. Praise our great king. We have a great king, just like Israel had a great king but we have the greatest king, just like Israel had the greatest king, King Jesus, our God who sits on the throne. 2 Samuel 22 begins with descriptions of how great our Lord is and uses all kinds of strong metaphors, things like a rock, a fortress, a refuge, a shield, a stronghold. He is the one who is our deliverer and our savior. David confesses, I called on the Lord and says in verse 7, and he heard my voice, my cry came to his ears. This is a king. This is, this is somebody who's supposed to be reigning over all things, right? He's got all the kingdom at peace and he says I had to call for help. I had to call for help. This is a somebody who is humble enough to know that he can't make it on his own. He needs the king above all kings. He needed a deliverer. He needed a savior. And God showed up Big time. Verses 8 through 16 in that chapter give dramatic descriptions of God coming to the rescue. And then we read in verse 18, He rescued me. Again in verse 20, He rescued me. God, the same God who is God over David, is the same God who is God over you. And you and I probably don't feel like we've got some high status like King David sitting on our throne, but you are ruling over something you're ruling over at least your own life, but probably you get got some influence in your family and your home and work and different places. You are sitting on some throne, no matter how big or small it may be. But you and I all, like King David, have to recognize we need a deliverer. We need a Savior. We need the King who is above all kings. The Lord lives, verse 47 says, and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God, the rock of my life. Salvation, Verse 51, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. David is exalting. He is praising. He is worshiping God for what he has done for us. Do you know why David's doing this? If you go into the second part of this, in chapter 23, he remembers the covenant that God has made with him. Chapter 23, verse 5, Does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant. David remembers, God has promised He will not leave His people. God is going to put a a descendant of David's on the throne forever. And because of that, David has full confidence in the one who is king. Chapter 21, verse 17, David, back before this chapter, David was called the lamp of Israel. And in chapter 22, verse 29, we read, David, praising God, he says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Any light in us, any goodness in us, it's not from us. It's from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. David is humble enough to recognize anything good in us is a gift of the Lord, the Lord working through us. He says as much in verse 28, You save a humble people, and your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. God is Fulfilling what he promised all the way back to Hannah in one Samuel chapter two, these psalms are like these songs are like bookends to the whole book. Second, one Samuel chapter two, Hannah prays about how the everything's going to be turned upside down. The humble are going to become king, and the exalted are going to get humbled. At the end of David's life, we recognize Saul exalted himself and he got humbled. David, who was out in a pasture just watching the sheep, he gets exalted. He's living out exactly what Hannah had prophesied and prayed at the very beginning. And here's what I love how, how this picture, how this connects to the big picture of first and 2 Samuel. Here is David, who is king. He's the one who seems to, should have been able to look back. You would, his temptation would be to say, I got it all figured out. I'm king. I'm somebody. But here he is, the last big section of what's recorded here about King David, this, this climax of this epilogue. He's not pointing to himself. He's pointing to the Lord. He's praising God for who he is. The great problem in First and 2 Samuel is that the people of Israel wanted a king like the nations. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they cried out to Samuel, Give us a king like the nations. And this is what they said, that, uh, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They didn't want to go to war, and they wanted somebody just to go and to make everything easy for us. And Samuel had told them, you're, What you're asking is not a good thing. You're not asking this for the right reasons. This is not a good thing. Why? Because Israel already had a king. His, he is God. God is the king. They were asking for a way to avoid having to deal with that God we can't see and just put somebody on the throne who will go out and fight for us. Now they have that king, and that king is telling them the same thing that Samuel told them back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You still have a king, and he is the Lord. He is the Lord. That's been the big picture, the big goal all the way through First and Second Samuel as Israel has moved from a time of judges to now an established monarchy. The question is, who's the king? We've been in search of a king. We've been in search of a king after God's own heart. You and I have the same king Israel had. Not David, but David's descendant, King Jesus. All along, God was the true king of Israel. He is the one who is the king of the kingdom. We are a part of that kingdom. And God is our true king. One more detail worth noticing out of chapter 24. The part I got Will to read was about a threshing floor of a man who is a Jebusite and this piece of property. And this all seemed kind of random and you know, confusing. Why, why these little bitty details at the end of this book? Well, if you keep going a little bit, which we won't because it's Christmas and we're going to do Christmas. But you can on your own time. Keep going a little bit forward and read about Solomon who comes after King David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, I mean, sorry, 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we read of where Solomon decides to put the temple that David had said he would build. He was gonna, Solomon was going to build this incredible temple to worship God in. And you know where he does it? Well, there's this piece of property that's been in his family ever since 2 Samuel 24. This threshing floor that happens to be just a little bit up the hill from where David's palace was overlooking where where David lived. That also just so happens to be the very place where Abraham, way back to Genesis 22, had come and brought his son to be sacrificed and God saved Isaac by putting a ram in his place. David made sacrifices here. Solomon comes, now builds a temple and thousands and thousands of sacrifices have been made right there on that spot. Today you could Google that spot because there's a big gold dome over it in Jerusalem. The temple rock there. That's where the temple was built. David had bought this piece of property so that, the temple, so that he could make a sacrifice and altar that day. And later that property becomes where the temple is. Some thousand years later or so, after Solomon built that temple, one man would come into that temple frequently and he would teach and he would proclaim about this kingdom of God and all these different things that he had to tell. And there were all kinds of people following him. But the religious rulers didn't like that guy very much. And so they took him right outside that temple, the threshing floor that David had bought all that time before, and they crucified him. But right above his head, it said, King of the Jews. This was Jesus. He had come to this same spot, the same place where David had, the same place that Solomon had, the same place that Abraham had long, long before. And He came as our atonement, the great King who made atonement for all sins. He came as one who was pulling together all kinds of followers from every tribe and nation and tongue. He came as one who is the one King to be praised. He is Jesus. And He proved His reign once and for all when He went up on a cross, died for sin, buried those sins in the grave, and then defeated that grave on the third day, coming back to life. He ascended back to the Father, and you know where He is? He is sitting on a throne. He is king. He is reigning. He is in charge of all things. That's the one David was pointing forward to. That's the one that First and Second Samuel has been leading up to, and He is the one we get to worship. He is your king, and He is worthy of your praise. And an awesome way to praise Him Is by worshiping him through the elements of the Lord's Supper. And so today we're gonna respond in worship by taking this meal together.